Hi, and welcome to the Renovate Podcast. My name is Robert Newberry, and I'm on staff here with Renovate, which is a ministry in Fort Worth, Texas for young adults. This week, we'll be back in our series, To Wander and Return, a study in the Minor Prophets. We hope you enjoy. Good. How are you guys tonight? Good. Good. Um, I am excited. Say that every single week. I mean it most weeks. This is one of those weeks that I do mean it. Um, We're going through the Minor Prophets, uh, and if you are new here, you haven't really been with us. My name is Ben. Uh, I work here and uh, love it. And, um, and yeah, so we've been preaching through the Minor Prophets, which are kind of these obscure books. Uh, A lot of people including myself, we don't spend a whole lot of time on in the Old Testament. They're like the last 14 books in the Old Testament. So we're going to be in Haggai tonight. And uh, I want to tell you guys a story, and I wrestled with this, uh, because I want to paint this illustration for you uh, about what it really looks like to be derailed, you know, and, and this concept of derailed. So all day today I've been thinking and, and prepping and praying through this, and I've just been thinking, man, what is, how do I illustrate for you guys just derailment, just awful derailment as just that you guys can, can get stuck in your mind, a picture of just something going off the rails to apply to this book, because that's a real imagery here that's going to be throughout this text. And I don't know if it's the Spirit of God or it's my own immaturity as a preacher, but this is the story that's been stuck in my head. The worst date of all time. I've heard this story before uh, from Carly McDougall, who used to be on staff here before she was dead to us. And she, uh, she's told me this story, but I, re- I was refreshed on it today and remember it. And it's, and it's just the most derailed date story I have ever heard in my life. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell that. It may be kind of immature and ridiculous, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I'm going to trust the spirit on this. So a guy, this is a friend of her brother's. If you knew Carly and you knew Tate, her brother, guy's crazy. He has crazy friends. So one of Tate's buddies goes on a date with this girl. And this wasn't just like any girl. This was like the girl that he was trying to get to go on a date for him with him for the longest time, right? And so this was like a long anticipated, lots of stalking, lots of hiding in bushes, lots of, you know, creepy in the backseat of the car kind of things, like just all the tactics. Finally, she says yes. Uh, and so they put this down on the calendar. Well, he had an awful stomach bug, right? Like just awful stomach bug, both ends, just nasty, gnarly stuff, right? Yeah, sorry. And he, uh, and he, but he's like, I'm not canceling this date. So it was about two days into the stomach bug, and it started to get better, right? He'd kind of taken the turn. He was like, I'm not missing out on this date. He planned this whole thing. And they were going to take a train to, I think it was to Dallas. I don't know if it was from Fort Worth to Dallas or Grapevine to Dallas. Regardless, they're going to get on a train. It's going to be cute, and they're going to go to Dallas, and they're going to go eat and, and all that kind of stuff at a fun place and then take the train back, right? It's a good date, right, guys? Yes? Yeah, not bad. So he gets on the train. Everything's going fine. It's pretty smooth. They go eat. They're eating, and then he pooped his pants a little bit. And like a little, not like full-on poop pants, but like a little bit. Of, and there is, a, there is a scale of appropriateness of how much you can poop your pants before it's too much. And he was just past that arch, right? So like just enough, just enough to be like too far. And it was like, oh, no, this is not good. Here's the impressive part. Guy's quick on his feet, right? Quick on his feet. Not quick enough to get to the bathroom, but quick enough to, re- to think this. And he goes, hey, you know what? And so he's kind of now like, oh, no, what do I do? We got to ride a train back together. Like, this isn't good. So he 
plays it off as like, hey, you know, there's like a gap just down the street. Let's go shop for a little. I actually need to get some new clothes. Let's go buy some clothes, which is really good recovery. And she's like, okay, cool. A girl doesn't like to go spend guys' money. So they're like, all right, cool. We'll go to Gap. So they go to Gap and they're shopping and he's like, and he grabs a pair of pants that's his size, right? Thinking ahead, of t- grabs a pair of pants and he's like, you should get something too. And she's like, I'm not sure. And like, he like grabs like a kind of like expensive sweater just to like throw her off. So it's not just weird that he went and bought a pair of pants. And so he like puts a, puts a sweater in there. He's like, you sure you don't win? And she's like, no, no. And so he gets up to the register and he's like, I guess this is all we're getting. And she's like looking at like earrings or whatever. And he leans over to the lady at the register and say, hey, I don't really want the sweater. Just, just, just put the pants in the bag. I don't really want the sweater. So, you know, kind of nonchalantly because he doesn't really care about the sweater. He just needs those pants because he's got poop in the pants he's wearing at that time. <laughs> so he gets his gap bag. They leave, right? Everything's great. The date's okay. It hasn't been ruined yet. As soon as they get back on the train, they're going to be in pretty close proximity. He can't, like, keep her at a distance at an awkward level. She might pick up on something. And so he's like, hey, let me, I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick, uh, but grab us a seat, and, and I'll be right there. He goes to the bathroom, derobes, right, takes off his pants, takes off his underwear, throws him out the window of the train, <laughs> opens up the bag, only a sweater. Only a sweater in the bag. True story. So he's now stuck on a train in the bathroom with no pants or underwear and only a Gap sweater in his bag. So he does what any of us would do, just hides in the bathroom for the 45-minute train ride back to Grapevine and just totally stands her up and she's confused and he just says, man, I'm so sorry, can you catch an Uber home? And like just totally avoids her and just kind of ditches her and hides in the bathroom until he thinks most people are gone. And then he puts his legs through the arms of the sweater and runs off the train. The most derailed date I could possibly think of. Right? If you've got a worse derailed date afterwards, see me in the prayer time afterwards. I will pray over you, and then I will probably use your date in a sermon illustration one day. Just awful, right? Just totally derails. I don't know if that was the Spirit of God giving me that story or if it's just my own immaturity as a communicator. But regardless, watch this segue, okay? Watch this segue. <laughs> uh, Haggai is about getting totally derailed, okay? Haggai is a book that is warning God's people to not poop their pants, right? God's people have been called back to the promised land, and Haggai is laying out through God's word, do not ruin this. This is the first post-exilic prophet book in in the book of the prophets. And what that means is all of the Israelites and a lot of the other books, you've got prophets. If you remember, if you've been a part of the series that are saying, hey, God's wrath is coming. His discipline's coming. You guys are going to get captive by the the Assyrians or by the Babylonians. They're going to drag you into captivity. This is God's judgment. Watch out. Warning people. Well, then it happens. And Israelites get dragged into captivity by Assyria, Babylon. This is the first book where they get released. They get released, it's post-exile, and they get to come back to God's promised land and reestablish what they were supposed to be the whole time. And this is God's word through the prophet Haggai in just two chapters. This book is only two chapters long, saying, do not get derailed. You have an opportunity here. Do not blow this. Do not ruin this. This is a golden opportunity. I have, I have had you in 70 years of discipline 
and exile teaching you and purifying you, and now you're coming back as this pure people. This is your opportunity. Do not miss it. There is so much good stuff in this book for us today in 2019. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to unpack the book. Believe it or not, I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible. There's two chapters, and we're going to, it breaks into four sections. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to read a section of Scripture, and we're going to unpack what's God doing here, what's, what is he saying in this section, and then we're going to move to the other section. There's these four big themes that God is warning his people, this will derail you, this will derail you, this will derail you, and this will derail you. So watch out for these things. And then, man, we are going to apply it to our lives, and we're going to pray the Holy Spirit would show us, Lord, where is this in my life? Where is this in my life? Because you are giving me an opportunity to walk with you. You are giving me an opportunity to have life and life abundantly. I don't want to miss that. I don't want you to miss that. And so what would you have for us, God? And so that's what we're doing um, in this book. So Haggai is towards the back of the Old Testament. It's page 790 in my Bible. And I would really encourage you, if you've got an iPhone Bible, get it out. There's Bibles in all of the seats underneath. I'm actually not going to throw the scriptures up on the screen but I really want to encourage you, man, I want you to be flipping pages, or even if it's on your phone, I want you to see what God's doing in this book. I think it's really important that you see and can, and can read the words yourself. So it's in uh, the Pew Bibles. Anybody have one of those blue Bibles? And if you, if you do, let me know where Haggai is. Let me know what page number Haggai is. 791? Nice. Okay, so 791. Oh, yeah, that's what it is in my Bible, too. <laughs> um, okay. 791, if you've got one of those blue Bibles uh, in the seat. Um, Another heads up, too, just a shout out. Our executive pastor's name is Bill Egner. Uh, he is a, he, yeah, he's, yeah, I think he's in the back there. Uh, he, um, he is a stud. He got his doctorate in Old Testament being smart, and he's just a brilliant guy. He is heavily influenced, even my reading of this. And as I was kind of uh, unpacking this, and I stole a bunch of notes from him, honestly, and have walked through it, and he's taught this book to me a couple times. This book and the book of Numbers, uh, he's really influenced a lot of how I read it. And as I was prepping this, a lot of, you know, his influence was coming out. I'm going to give him a shout out. He does an Old Testament class every Sunday night. If you like this kind of stuff, if you're like into this and you're like, dude, this is fun and I want more of this. Like I could do without the poop story. Just give me the good, like wise wisdom, right? That's him every Sunday night here at the church. So just a shout out for that class. Uh, if you really want to go deep into the Old Testament, uh, he is, uh, he is, he is the best at it, honestly. So um, yeah, put that on your radar. Okay. So it's the first post-exilic book, right? We've got to understand the context of what's happening here. Uh, Cyrus is the, is the guy who has released the Jews. He has released about 50,000 Jewish people to go home, to go home, to go back to their land and rebuild their temple, which is a, a pretty benevolent thing to do for an enemy dictator. But he says, you know what? These people are still going to pay homage to me, and I don't want a whole bunch of Jewish people mad at me, slaves. Let's just send them back to their own land, and I can tax them over there. So he sends these people back. Uh, Zerubbabel is the leader who leads them back. He's the king, godly man. We're going to see him mentioned a lot of times in this book to lead the, these 50,000 people back into the land that was Israel's that they had been taken from for 70 years, basically an entire, almost an entire generation. Maybe a few old people come back who were kids when they were abducted from this land. But for the most part, this is an entirely new generation that returns to this land. They go back to the land to build the temple. Hey, we're going to build our temple. And so he's like, fine, go back to your land, live there, build your temple to your God, and that's fine. There's 15 years 
of apathy then because 538 BC is when he releases them back. This book picks up in 520. So there's about 15 to 18 years where they're back home and they are not building the temple. There is an apathy, there's an oppression, there's other enemies that they're trying to fend off all while they're trying to reestablish their community. Uh, there's laziness that sets in. And so they're 18 to 15 years of being back home, still no temple. Uh, Haggai shows up in 520 BC, about 18 years later from the time they return, and speaks what the Lord has for him to speak. That's where this book comes from. That's where chapter one starts. Chapter one, I'm going to read you. I'm really just going to read you all of chapter one because it's one big theme here in chapter one. And then the second chapter kind of breaks up into these three little themes. So read with me here. It says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. They're getting called out. Right? They're getting called out. You see what's happening here? So let me unpack it, and then I'll, I'll finish this chapter in here just a second. So I want us to slow down and look and see what God's doing. They come back. They're not building God's house, the house it's referred to. And then in verse 4, he says, hey, it's time. You live in houses with panels, right? You have taken the time to not just, like, put a shelter over your head, but you've got paneled houses. You are spending time making elaborate dwellings for yourself, but the Lord's house still isn't completed. And then he goes on to talk about this idea of, you wonder why you're not getting blessed. Like he says, man, you wonder why you're planting, but it's not really growing as much. And when you eat, you just never really have enough. And you got clothes, but you're never really warm. And you gather money, but it's like putting it into a bag with holes. God's withholding his blessing from his people to teach them, to discipline them, to show them this is why. He tells why. He says, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, in verse 9, while each of you busies himself with his own house. They have prioritized themselves and their own selfishness and deprioritized the building of God's house. And God says, I'm holding back from you because of your disobedience. 
you got set free from captivity by me, a sovereign God, through the working of this pagan king to then come back and build this home and you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You're just concerned with your own comfort. This is cool because then look what they do. I love when people actually repent. Then Zerubbabel, in verse 12, I'm going to pick up in verse 12 through the rest of the chapter. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Chapter 1 is about selfish priorities in this book. Chapter 1 is about selfish priorities. Selfish priorities, man. That's what was happening in these people's lives. It was, this, it was this season where they had come back, they had been set free, God had given them a mandate, given them a job to do, given them a calling to live out, and they were selfish in their priorities. God was not among their priorities. Doing what God had asked was not among their priorities. He, they get called out. They repent, the Lord blesses them. Look at chapter two. This is the second kind of derailment of like, man, this is where things can really get derailed. The second derailment in chapter two, verse one. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant, of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What in the world is happening in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9? Here's what's happening. They are discouraged. They get God's favor. They repent. They're like, man, we got to get on it. We're going to build it. Look what happens. They get it built. Between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, they build the temple. There's a big lapse of time there. They build the temple, and yet they're discouraged. And so what happens in these verses is God is encouraging them in a really, really interesting way. He's saying, guys, guys, my spirit remains in your midst. Look at this. He says, uh, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come, and they will fill this house, the house, the temple that they just built, 
I'm going to fill it, guys, with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. And then he says this really interesting thing in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Here's what's happening. These people come back. They're not prioritizing God. God wakes them up and they think, oh my gosh, we're not prioritizing God. We're putting panels on our house. We're not building the Lord's house. We're on it. God's like, thank you. Be blessed for that. Great. They build the house. Then they're discouraged. What's happening is they are comparing the temple that they built to the temple that they all know used to exist before the exile. Because before Assyria and then Babylon came and wiped out the temple, there was a temple, right? A great, great temple that was built, right? And it was this incredible thing. Solomon's temple and all of its glory. And it was this amazing temple. And all of these people would have known about it. And there even would have been some people here who would have been kids, who would have played around that temple before they got drug into captivity. And now they're old men. And they're looking at the temple they just built, commissioned by God, blessed by God. And they're looking at their temple, and they're like, man, this isn't as good. The former was better than the latter. And in these nine verses, God is saying, no, no, no. My spirit is going to dwell here. This is good. This is actually better than the other one. God is encouraging them because they have fallen into this derailment trap where they are not worshiping in the temple because of a comparison trap. The theme here, the derailment that God is protecting these people against is dangerous comparison in their life. They are not able to worship and rejoice and be present in fellowship with the Lord because although they've done what was right, they look at what used to be there. They look at the other temple that used to be sitting there like, man... This is not as good. There is this dangerous comparison happening with these 50,000 Israelites that are not worshiping because they have a faulty perspective, because they're too consumed with what the other temple was. You tracking with me? You seeing how dangerous that is? I love that God calls that out. I love that he says, no, 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 my spirit is going to dwell here. And really, we know historically this is the temple that lasts for 500 years, the temple that these people built, that they were like, eh, this isn't as impressive. And it wasn't. By, by just measurements of the temple and scope and amount of gold and amount of opulence to it, it was not as great as Solomon's temple, that temple that was built. But this temple lasted for 500 years. This is the temple in Haggai that they build right here in chapter 2, in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, that ends up being the temple that Jesus Christ does his ministry in. This is the temple that's still standing. This is the temple that Jesus Christ goes into and flips over tables one day because there's money changers in there. And he says, get out of my father's house. This ends up becoming the New Testament temple that we see uh, the Romans occupy. But they can't see it for what it's worth. They can't see it for the value because all they can do is compare themselves to the other one. Really, really good caution to watch for that'll derail us. Dangerous, dangerous comparison. Okay, look at verses 10. This third section is verses 10 through almost the end of this book. Verses 10 through verses 19. And there's kind of this third caution here that we're going to see play out. I love that all these sections, too, start with an actual day. It's like, hey, on this exact day, here, here's what was going on. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. 
If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answer and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the produce of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Here's what's happening in these nine verses. They build the temple. They wrap their mind around, okay, God says this temple is good. This temple is good. We're going to trust God. We're not going to compare it to past temples. Then they're bringing their sacrifices. And God's withholding blessing again. And he's disciplining them. And they're bringing their blessing and they're going and they're bringing up vats of wine and they're expecting this much, but it's not that much. And, and it's not returning with a blessing and profitable. And, and there's this confusion here. And God's saying, it's because you're unclean. And what he's saying is, you're in the temple you built and you're sacrificing to me. But you're sacrificing and you're doing these things for me, but there is unconfessed sin here. God's lovingly, lovingly calling his people out and saying, do you see your unconfessed sin? Man, we bring our gifts and we bring our sacrifices and we do great things and we hide our sin. And we think that doesn't affect it and we think that doesn't pollute it. And God says he doesn't want our sacrifices. The sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite spirit. But here the people of God are bringing sacrifices. He's not blessing it because the people are living in sin. And it's unconfessed. I love this. I think so often, man, religion um, and our, our, our faith, it becomes so religious, right? And we get stuck in this trap of thinking, okay, in order to get God's blessing, in order to get God's favor, in order to get fellowship, in order to get close with God, whatever it is that we're after, I need to do these things. I need to do these religious rituals. I need to show up in the worship services and sing some songs and be here. And I need to, and I need to follow the list of things to do. And if I follow the right religious list of things to do, then God's going to bless me and, and I'm going to be right with God. And all throughout Scripture, for whatever reason, that's our bent and that's our instinct and that's our performance-driven mentality of I've got to do this and I've got to earn this thing before God. And look at me earn this and look at me do what I'm supposed to do and look at me take my sacrifices before the Lord in this context, in, in this culture. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to confess your sin and walk away from it. You have unconfessed sin. He is a gracious God all throughout this book, all throughout this entire book. He shows his grace constantly as we repent, as we say, man, look at how broken we are. And he says, yes, and I love you. 
and I will restore you. Here the people of God are thinking they can just be religious and hide their sin, keep their sin hidden and private and not have to bring it before God. That is a major place where God's saying, you will get derailed, Israel. People of God, this will derail you if you keep trying to approach me with religious actions and no heart change and no confession. That is dangerous to have unconfessed sin. I'm going to not bless you to try to teach you what is good and right. And they do. And they do and they change and they confess and it's this awesome thing. And this season of this people, God's people, is a real fruitful season where they get called out and they see it. And under this king's rubabel, they change. And they say, oh, man, we're doing it wrong. Let's, let's do it right. Nonetheless, this very last section, Zerubbabel is remarkably still discouraged. So look at me with 20, verses 20 through the end of the chapter here. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms to the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This section, Zerubbabel is discouraged. He's discouraged because he is under assault from other people, um, other nations. He is discouraged because of his mistakes he is discouraged because he is this king that's going to lead God's people finally back away from the exile into the land. And he's had some missteps, but he's repented from those. And yet at the end of the book, right before the end of the book, in between verses 19 and 20, we see a king who is cripplingly discouraged. And this idea of crippling discouragement is something that God speaks out against. And something specifically that God then goes and affirms him. The king who has led his people in these three derailments. God says, hey, you, it's okay. It's okay. Yes, you've made mistakes, but I am going to do mighty things through these people. Don't be discouraged. Don't be paralyzed by your discouragement. I am going to do mighty things. I will wipe out your enemies. Don't be discouraged. Oh, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and make you like a signet ring. And look at this, the God of the universe says to this very imperfect, very fallen, very broken, mistake-prone king, I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Crippling discouragement becomes this theme here to say, watch out for that. I love this book. I love this book. I think it breaks into these incredibly practical pieces of caution for God's people. I think it breaks into incredibly practical pieces of application in my life. Every one of the ways that God's people are wandering into these problems, I see in my life. Here's how I want to end. I want the Holy Spirit to take this and I want him to do work with you. I can't do that. That's going to have to be between you and the Lord. But I want you to hear God's word tonight and I want you to say, man, where are my danger spots? 
Where are the places that I can get derailed? Where, where do I have some problems with this? So ask yourself, man, where are your priorities? Where are your priorities? Have you made God a priority? And man, that is so easy for that sentence to sound so cliche, right? Is God a priority in your life? Man, you God, family, work, friends, whatever it is. Like, that's so, it's so easy for the Christian culture to just say, oh yeah, God's going to be a priority. What, like, is he actually a priority? What do you spend your time on? How do you spend your time? You will know your priorities by how you spend your time, by how you spend your thoughts, by how you spend your money. Where do you prioritize? Somebody um, once asked me, or I heard it in a sermon, or I read it somewhere, uh, this idea of, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, God first, family second, friends third, or whatever it is, but it's God, family, usually. And they ask the question, like, what happens if you actually take your number two and move it to number one? Does, you know, so family is all of a sudden number one and God is number two. Does anything actually practically look different in your life? It's really easy for me to say, yep, God first, family second. But if I, if I were to change that list and say, well, it's family first, God second. Like, conviction-wise, does anything really look that different in my life? The fact that I say God is first, is he really first? Have I really prioritized the God of the universe, my relationship with him, my life centered around him? If you are in Christ in this room, you've put your faith in Christ, we are post-exile. We have been taken from death to life. We have this opportunity to then build our temple for his glory, our life to be about his glory. Am I prioritizing living my life in a way that I'm building a temple for the world around me to look at and say, Jesus is good? Not Ben's great or that guy's great or that girl's great, but Jesus is good and real and powerful, and I want to worship that God. Whatever God he follows, I want to, I want to worship that God. Whatever God she follows, that is, do I build my life with that radical priority? That's my call. I've been set free from exile to now build my life as a temple purchased under Jesus Christ for his glory. Is that happening? Is that really happening? Check your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit. God, show me where my priorities are off. Don't, don't take this and make it some trite, shallow application. Take it deep. Where do you need to change your priorities? Are you pursuing your own greatness, your own comfort, your own home, your own dreams? Or are you building your life as Jesus is the foundation? Ask yourself that. Ask the Lord. Lord, show me. Show me where I'm pursuing my own house rather than your house with my life. Comparison. Gosh, that is close to home. Comparison. Man, we are in a world, folks, where comparison is everywhere. Social media is all it is is a constant comparison of my life or that life or this and that. All we do, we walk through a world of comparison. And God says, stop it. God says, stop it. In John 20, verse uh, chapter 21, verses 20 through 22, it's a story where Peter is comparing himself to, to the disciple John. And he says, hey, what's going to happen with John? You know, is John going to, like, get persecuted and he's walking with Jesus? What's going to happen with that guy? Because, you know, I think I'm going to go through some hard things. You're telling me, Jesus, but what about that guy? And Jesus is like, don't. Follow me. Don't compare yourself to what happens to the disciple John. You follow me. Don't compare yourself. Now, we compare ourselves in our Christian life. You might be serving even, right? You might be out there and you might serve or you might do some very beneficial things with your life. And then still there's this thorn of like, yeah, but not as, 
not as great as that person, or, yeah, I'm good, but I don't do that. There's always someone else. That will derail you. That will derail you, Renovate. Watch out for that. Comparison. Identify it and kill it. If you can't be on social media without falling into the trap of comparison, get off social media. It is not worth it. Third thing, ask the Lord, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there unconfessed sin in my life? We worship this gracious, good God who meets us in our brokenness. Right, Robert got up here at the very beginning of the service and was like, man, we're broken people. We are broken people. We serve a perfect God. We're broken people. And yet, man, we don't want to confess that. We don't want to look like that. And that's easy to say, but, whoa, wait, wait a second. Nobody should really know my sin. Man, if there is sin in your life, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. John says this. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not hiding our sin in the darkness, not hiding all the things that, man, I don't want you guys to think about me in the darkness, but instead bringing into the light, walking in that light, we all of a sudden have fellowship with a bunch of other sinners who all get to expose their junk in the light and say, yeah, this is, this is my sin. This is my imperfection. I'm not disloved because of it. I'm, still, I'm loved despite that. I'm loved just the same. And if we do that, we have fellowship with one another. If we say we have no sin, if you're here and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know if I really wrestle with this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then verse 9 is so encouraging. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? And then lastly, discouragement. Is there crippling discouragement in your life? Um, 2 Corinthians 5.7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet so often I feel like circumstances that defeat me or deflate me, disappoint me, all of a sudden those circumstances change whether or not I'm actually able to walk like 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells me to, which is by faith. And all of a sudden it's like, no, no, I'm walking by sight and not faith. And I don't see it. And I'm frustrated. And I'm hurt. I know there are people in this room who feel like they're stuck in discouragement. Maybe it's discouragement because of where you're at in life and unmet expectations of where you thought you were going to be or where you thought you were going to be regarding a relationship that didn't work out or hasn't worked out or you're waiting for it to work out. Or your job and where you thought you'd be in your career and where you thought you'd be in life, where you thought you'd be socially, where you thought, and you're stuck in discouragement. And it derails us. It's not to be taken lightly. I'm not saying fake it. I'm not saying put on a mask. I'm saying own it. Bring it into the light with other people and let them speak truth over you and hear the word of God that looked at a king who was very imperfect and made a ton of mistakes and came in to the new promised land, ready to go, made a bunch of mistakes, and God says, I have chosen you. I will wear you like a signet ring. Your God, if you're in Christ this night, your Father looks at you and says, I love you. And you say, yeah, but I'm discouraged, and I'm not where I want to be, and there's this circumstance and that circumstance and things that weigh on me. I get it. I'm not here to tell you that God's going to fix all your circumstances. That's not his promise to us. But his promise is, I love you. 
He says, you are my son and I care about you. You are my daughter and I care about you. You are a signet ring to me. I have chosen you. Find your value. Find your encouragement in who the God of the universe, who breathes life into us, who holds all things together, says about you. And if you're in this room tonight and you say, man, I don't know that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Know that you can because of Jesus Christ. Because we have a God who sent his son to die for us. All of your sin, all of your lack of righteousness gets put on Jesus. And you say, okay, I can't be religious enough, but I can put my faith in Jesus Christ. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ get to approach a perfect God and be fully loved by him. And then this encouragement applies to them for those who are in Christ because of the power of the gospel. Let me pray over you. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for how you love us. God, protect us. Thank you for your word, God, and how powerful and how applicable it is. Thank you that a book that was written by a prophet who you spoke through hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 2,500 years ago, we get to read on a random Wednesday in June in 2019, and Lord, would your spirit speak to us through your words? Would you protect us from these things that derail us? Would you allow us to identify them and repent from them and turn from them? God, that we would trade our discouragement for what you say about us, that we would walk by faith and not by sight, not by the circumstances around us, that we would not fall into the trap of comparison, God, that we would prioritize you, Lord, God, would you do this work in us? Would you bring out our sins so that your grace would crush it under your heel? We love you and you love us so well and so perfectly. Thank you, Father. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What we see from Scripture is a reflection of what is going on in our own hearts. We, like the Israelites, are so quick to focus on our own needs, wants, and desires that we forget to recognize what the Lord has done. We shift our gaze back onto ourselves so often and so quickly that we need constant reminders to fix our eyes back on the Lord because He is the giver of all good things. So may we, as a community, make the time to prioritize the Lord each and every day, recognizing that everything good comes from Him even when we feel like we don't have the time because we're too busy or can't wait on an opportunity, may we believe that our priority is always God first and out of that, order our life in the same way. So if you need help figuring out what that looks like or just want someone to talk to, reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw and we would enjoy hearing from you. That's all for now. We hope to see you again soon.